Hey, thanks so much for joining us on our Summit Church podcast. If you are new here, we want to help connect you with God and all that he has in store for you. We hope that this inspires you, strengthens your faith, and gives you hope to live your best days now. Enjoy the message. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and I want to share with you on the passage in Acts 2 from Pentecost, but I want to go through the back door. Um, I shared in the first service, and historically for me, I can never preach the same message twice, not even in my own pulpit in our multiple services. And so I'm going to just do part two. It's a, it's a word all by itself. But if you get bored with it, just go listen to part one, and you'll have a laugh or two. And, uh, but look with me in Acts chapter 2 at a few portions of Scripture Beginning at verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven, as of a mighty wind, a sound, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. One sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 8 says, And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Verse 11, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, and that's my text today, Peter taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy." We are meaning makers by design. Something occurs in our life and we seek to find out what it means. Uh, As charismatics or as charismaniacs, we find meaning in everything. That guy cut me off on the freeway. What does that mean, God? My light bulb isn't working right. Is there a demon in that thing, Lord? We take it to an extreme. Charismaniacs take everything to an extreme. I know there are no charismaniacs in San Antonio. They're all in Orlando. Um, But just in case you're here, um, I I, I know you're here. Um, But we are meaning makers. And we're meaning makers because at the core of our being, we are observers. You are not your thoughts, and you are not your feelings. You have thoughts and you have feelings that determine the actions you take. The challenge for most of us, because we live in a very 
highly technique-driven culture is that we're always looking for the next easiest formula to fix our lives. Three easy steps to this, five steps to this. The challenge is, the operative word there is fix. Human beings aren't machines. We are not supposed to be fixed. Y'all breathing? I asked that a lot at home. Are you breathing? So they made a bunch of T-shirts and wore them all to church two Sundays ago. Are you breathing? Sometimes they say barely. But... Um, one of the things that I think is so important is to realize that we are the product of the culture we've been raised in. And the culture we've been raised in is a fix-it culture. But we forget that we're humans. We're not machines. If I hear one more prophet in the Pentecostal world say, I got a download from God, I'm going to kill him and send him to heaven early and ask God's forgiveness. We don't get downloads. We're not computers. That's not how God works. We're human beings. And it's human beings we were made as image bearers who are very complicated in terms of intuition, imagination, perception, cognition, reflection, reasoning. All of those things are involved in when we get these nudges and impressions that we figure out after a while and we're slow to figure it out that God's trying to tell us something. I'm not saying we can't say God told me, but please understand anytime you say God told me, 99% of it is your personality, 1% may be the Holy Spirit. You're fallible, you're human. And it's okay to be human. God didn't choose you in spite of your humanness. God chose you because of your humanness. I shared this in the first service. I, in 2007, I hit a perfect storm. I was at the top of my A-game, I suppose you could say, and things couldn't have been going any better, but things started going really bad really fast, and I went through a storm of horrendous proportions and went through a three-and-a-half-year period of the darkest season in my life and had to choose life every one of those 1,810 days because everything in me said it's not worth living anymore. I have a new book coming out by Chosen Books in July called On the Edge of Hope where I tell a good portion of the story. And um, it, it's pretty transparent and pretty raw. But in light of what we've been through in the last two and a half, three years as, as, a, as a people, a lot of people, I think, are going to want to gravitate towards reading it because I talk about just the nature of you can't fix us. We need to be healed, not fixed. We're on a journey towards becoming fully and truly human. Jesus died to make us human. He didn't die to fix us. Jesus is the one truly human being that ever lived. 
It's the reason in the Nicene Creed, when we get to the second article on, on the eternal Son, that it says he became truly human. In other words, whatever Adam was prior to the fall, he was to become human. When Adam and Eve chose to independently become what God was going to make them by grace, they became dehumanized and brought evil into the world. And so we have inherited the scars of that dehumanization. And Jesus came to press the reset button to humanize us so that by the time we die and receive our resurrection bodies, we can be and become truly human beings. And we learn what it is to be human by the way Jesus dies. It is Pilate who says the divine project is completed. You didn't know that, did you? Pilate brings out Jesus after he's been flogged and beaten, the crown of thorns with three-inch thorns going deep into his cranial sac so that his head is three times the size of its normal size. He says, Ecce homo, behold the human one. So when God, the triune God in Genesis 1 says, let us make man in our image and likeness. That's the divine project. It gets foiled in the garden, and it's not until Pilate says, behold the human one, that we see what God is looking for. Not the fact that he's been bloodied and beaten, but that in self-sacrificial love, he gives himself for the sake of all humanity. That is what it means to be human. You can't fix yourself. Becoming human is a journey to becoming whole, and that is impossible apart from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the truly human one, the God-man, Christ Jesus. And God doesn't choose you in spite of your brokenness. You are a bundle. You're a hot mess, actually. So am I. But you are a bundle of brokenness and beauty commingled. And you will be that till the day you die. And as much as I loved Daddy Hagen and got to know him and his family uh, in those days when I was on TBN, as much as I loved the Word of Faith, and as much as I love confessing I'm the righteousness of God in Christ, I also know I'm still a sinner. The early church called the saints forgiven sinners. So it's never been off my lips from the time I was 19 to pray the prayer of Bartimaeus. Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. I pray that every day, sometimes 30 times a day, because if you live in Orlando and drive on I-4, you have to pray that. <laughs> Italians talk in a different kind of tongue, and when I got Pentecostals in the car and I want to say things that they don't understand... I speak in Italian tongues, and I get to say things that only God gives me permission to say. 
I also shared in the first service that Italians have a method of laying on of hands that's far more effective than Paul's and James's and Jesus's. And it's only 500 bucks and it fixes the stuff that needs to be fixed. That's you're allowed to fix with just Louie and Anthony. Just call me and I will call them and they'll bring the bat and lay hands and that situation will be solved. But our brokenness and our beauty are commingled. So there's this irony that it's our weakness that attracts us to Jesus. He's not impressed with your gifts because he gave them to you. He's not impressed with your personality because he made you that way. What draws him to you and what causes him to lay his life down for you is that all that you are not, he became so that you might become all that he is. He became as we are that we might become as he is. That's a paraphrase of Athanasius from the fourth century. But when Jesus gets in the waters of John's baptism, he's not getting in the waters because he needs to be baptized. He's not getting in the waters because he needs to be cleansed of anything. As a matter of fact, when he gets in the waters, the waters get clean. Reality, that's theological reality. When he gets in the waters, he cleanses the waters. He gets in the waters as us and for us to receive the Spirit as us and for us so that at Pentecost he can give the Spirit to us. Theology 101. Jesus receives the Spirit in the Jordan at the hands of his cousin as us in humanity, for us as humans, so he can give the Spirit to us as humans so that we can become more fully human. He didn't give you the Spirit so you could brag about having gifts. He gave you the Spirit so that that fiery love that consumes the areas that make you broken and weak can be caught up in his amazing grace so that by the Spirit, and Wesley said, grace is nothing more and nothing less than a synonym of the Holy Spirit, so that by that grace he might make you fully and truly human. And that's the journey you're on for the whole of your life, and you will not be fully human till you receive your resurrected body. But all along the way, the Spirit of Pentecost will breathe and pour his love, his fiery love, into you and through you so that you can discover the ecstasy and bliss of dancing with the God of love and inviting others to that dance. Dance with me, I want to be your partner. Dance with me, I'd like to teach the world to sing. That's Pentecost. Listen carefully. And we're told in this story, not that they spoke in glossolalia, which is unknown tongues, but they spoke in known languages, which means everybody knew what they were saying except the people that were saying it. They weren't speaking in things that were tongues of angels. They were speaking in tongues of other human beings so that other human beings could hear the story of Jesus. And what they were hearing was the story 
of a loving Savior who died and was buried and rose to give them the ability to become human. That's the message of Pentecost. If you were to ask William Seymour, who's now in the great cloud of witnesses, what was the Pentecostal distinctive, Brother Seymour? Was it speaking in tongues? He would say, no. It was the love that we walked in. It was the love that erased the racial hatred that existed in the Jim Crow area. It was the love that caused the blacks and the whites and the Spanish to worship together as one. It was a baptism of the love of Jesus. That's what made us distinctive. Because the white folk were here, the Spanish folk were there, the black folk were there. But in the heart of L.A. on Azusa Street, when the spirit fell, black folk, white folk, red folk, yellow folk came together and worshipped the same Jesus. The blood covered us all. We touched a little bit of heaven and found out what it means to be human. Now, when we think about God chose us not in spite of ourselves, but because us, because of ourselves, God's not afraid of your weakness. God's not afraid of your idiosyncrasies. God's not even afraid of your sins. None of that causes God to turn his gaze from you. If anything, his self-sacrificial love causes him to say, I'm going to empty myself into the human condition so I can let them know the place where they stand is holy. Sacrifice means to make sacred. You have become sacred place because of Jesus' sacrifice. The wonderful works that were told on the day of Pentecost was that a dead man really came back to life and now his shadow was doing something in those that were on the journey to becoming human. And we're told in that story that Peter took his stand with the 11. Let's not gloss over that. Let's slow down to the speed of revelation. Let's slow down to the speed of life. And let's trust the story. John's gospel opens with the fact that when Andrew and John the Beloved are following John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes to a point where Jesus is passing by him after the wilderness temptation. And as he's passing by John, John the Beloved and Andrew are standing next to him and he looks at them and says, Behold the Lamb of God. He said it publicly 40 days before when he baptizes them. But now he's saying it post the wilderness testing, and saying it to two of his disciples. And it's a different word for behold. It's a word that means in the Greek, 
Let this man engrave himself on your inner being. Let him put his impression into the depths of your being. At which point, Andrew and John the Beloved realize that John the Baptist has taken them as far as he can take them, and the rest is up to Jesus. And they begin to follow Jesus on the road. He's walking way ahead of them, but he's got eyes behind his head. And he turns around and says, what is it you're really looking for? And they said, Rabbi. So they were already confessing. They now see him as their mentor. Where are you staying? Where are you abiding? Where is the space you live in? He doesn't give them a dress, otherwise we'd add it to our Holy Land tours. He's giving them an opportunity to experience he and his father. So he says, come and see. It's an invitation to come and keep coming, see and keep seeing. Because as the late Robert W. Jensen says, God is a place all by himself. And they begin to follow Jesus and they are so impacted by who this human being is. Mary's boy, that they begin to share with their closest friends and family. And Andrew says to Simon, his brother, we found the Messiah. And he brings him to Jesus. And at the very beginning of the encounter, Jesus, we're told by John, says to Simon, you're Simon, but I'm going to call you Cephas. Now, the real encounter for that is going to be in Matthew 16. But he tells him from the beginning, I see who you are going to become, and I choose you in spite of who you are. I, I choose you because of who you are, not in spite of who you are. He knows every fault and failing and fallibility in Simon. But it's the raw material from which Peter, like the phoenix, will rise from the ashes and become the firebird. So if we fast forward, three years later, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is standing at the tableland behind that great gushing waterfall that's coming out of the mountain at Caesarea, and he's on a rock, and there's water flowing down, and he says, who do men say the Son of Man is? Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? And Simon said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you also that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Immediately, Jesus begins to tell them about the cross. The Son of Man must suffer and be handed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on a cross. And immediately, Simon Peter takes him aside. Literally in the Greek, he manhandles him and says, they will never do that to you. I won't let them. At which point, Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, because you are not concerned about God's interests, but man's interests. This is the one, he's been given the keys, and now we discover the purpose of the satanic. The satanic and the demonic are related, but they're not the same. Listen carefully. 
The work of the satanic is to separate first Christ from the cross and then his followers from the cross. When Simon manhandles him and rebukes Jesus for talking about the cross and saying it won't happen, he says that Jesus says, you're Satan. The cross is central. You can't become a human except the cross-shaped life. I can't fix, I can't heal your brokenness unless you go through the cross. Because your brokenness is a sign of your need to be in charge, your need to be in control, your need for certainty, your need to have three easy steps to get what you want. The satanic always separates the believer from the cross. The demonic then comes in and ravishes, and that's what happens at the cross. The demonic comes in and destroys. And Peter is the first partaker of discovering I don't want a cross. I want an easy formula to become a human. And there is no easy formula. There's only the cross-shaped life. I want to say something. I want to be very respectful and very careful as I say this, but the American church wants a bloodless gospel. We want a gospel without any cost at all. We don't want sacrificial love. We don't want to take up our cross and follow him. We want individual what's in it for me. I want my rights, Jesus. And we've weaponized the cross and divided the body of Christ. And we are now a reproach in the American society because the church is disagreeing over things we shouldn't even be disagreeing about. And instead of embodying humanness Twitter reveals that we dehumanize one another Facebook is even worse we don't want the cross we've weaponized the cross and turned it into us and them and we want to kill our enemies instead of die for them and call ourselves Christians God have mercy on the American church it's already under judgment we just don't see it which is why you need to thank God every day for the house you are in and the gospel you hear. And so now we discover Simon's got a way to go. But then he goes on to say, one of you is going to betray me and the rest of you are going to deny me. I'll never deny you. Before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny you ever knew me. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times you ever knew me. Not me. You know the story, don't you? Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. I don't pray you don't fail. I pray that your faith doesn't fail. Simon needs to fail so Peter can rise from the ashes. Jesus doesn't choose him in spite of himself. He chooses him because he knows we can make, because he calls those things that are not as though they are and declares the end from the beginning. And he says, I'll take what you give me, but you got to give it to me honestly. And he denies him three times. He goes out and weeps bitterly. And even after the resurrection, he can't handle himself. The shame, the guilt, the negation, the blame. 
So he decides, I'm going to go back and go fishing. And by the way, he denies Jesus at a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire is only mentioned twice in all of the New Testament. Once in Pilate's Hall and once when Jesus makes breakfast on the beach, post-resurrection appearance. And when Jesus is making breakfast, it happens to be on a, a, on a morning after a night where Peter has decided, I'm going back fishing, I'm pressing the reset button, I'm done with all this apostolic stuff, I'm going in the wrong direction, I want things to be the way they were before this all started. And because he's a natural leader, he takes six of the disciples with him in the wrong direction, which is why they're fishing on the wrong side of the boat, which is why Jesus has cast your net on the right side. Move in a forward direction, not a backward direction, because your hope isn't in your past, it's in your future. Jesus is calling us from the future to the future. Pentecost is a call to the future. It's way more than talking in tongues. It's about love. And Jesus says, children, haven't got time. That's a message all by itself. Have you any fish? No, we don't. He's cast your nets on the right side. They cast their nets on the right side. John, the beloved, that's the Lord. They don't recognize his form, but they recognize his ways. Because every time after the resurrection he shows up, he shows up in a different form. Because he's weaning them away from knowing him in the way they wanted to know him with certainty and teaching them how to know him by the Spirit. They rec he recognizes them. And when John recognizes him, it's Peter that gets in the water. Now, ironically, Peter is stripped down to his loincloth. You'd think he'd just jump in the water, but he puts his clothes on and gets in the water. Because he's broken. He wants to hide just like Adam did with fig leaves. But he can't help but, but swim to Jesus. And when he gets there, he notices a charcoal fire. And there's already fish on the griddle. Nobody ever asked how the fish got there. Jesus didn't need to catch anything to cook fish. He's already got fish on the griddle, but it's a charcoal fire. Only other place it's mentioned. And uh, Jesus doesn't say a word except bring some of the fish you caught. Let's cook them. Let's break bread. It's a Eucharistic meal. Let's eat. And Jesus just serves breakfast. Not one of the disciples said a mumbling word. They didn't say a word. And after the dinner was over, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? What are the these? Is it the fish? Is it the disciples? Or is it going fishing? Or is it all three? And yes, there are three different verbs that Peter uses to describe love. And Jesus uses the word agape the whole time. But before you turn that into a big, deep teaching, they actually are all synonyms, if you ask a Greek scholar. But if you want to go that way, I will. I like you, Lord. Great, you're honest. Take care of the little lambs of the flock. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I love you like a brother. Great, take care of the mature sheep. 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. The best I can give you is the love I've got. Be the apostle I called you to be for the first time in your life. You're honest, you're transparent, you're becoming human, and I'm calling you to love. I'm calling you to love. So when the day of Pentecost fully comes, they're all standing there. And Peter's supposed to be the spokesperson, but if you look carefully there in the Greek, he doesn't want to speak. He's aware of how many mistakes he's made. He's aware of how many times he's blown it. He's aware of the fact that he's the least likely person to be given the keys to open the door. In the 1990s, I studied psycholinguistics, and we had to study the story of Joe Girard from Michigan, who was a successful car salesman who happened to attend a funeral of a Catholic friend. And the funeral director handed out a number of cards and ran out with the last person getting the last card. And he said, how would you know how many cards to give out? He says, it's pretty much a rule. Every person that dies has at least 250 people that want to show up at their funeral. This is going back years. He went to a Protestant funeral. It was the same thing. Then he discovered there was a rule that most people know 250 people at any given point in time in their life. It says, Peter taking his stand with the 11. Let me suggest to you that they had to push him forward because he was so aware of his brokenness. He didn't want to mess up anymore, but he knew he owed them a love. He, if he loved them the way he loved Jesus, then he had to stand with them so that his voice could be their collective voice. And when he stood and gave voice, there were now 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were about to speak as one man the language of love to all the nations under heaven. And the law of 250 applies because 12 times 250 is 3,000. Each of them had an influence of 250 people. And, and Peter's voice was the key to 3,000 people and a family of believers that came out of a place of hiding to a place of love. If there's one distinguishing characteristic of the life of Jesus, it's that he loves us in our brokenness. He loves us in our pain. He loves us in our affliction. He loves us in our humanness, and he loves us all the way. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. You can hear more messages by visiting summitsa.com.